Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Tonight we continue our sermon series in the little epistle of James. And we're thinking about integration, real faith connecting with real life. And in this text, we make a particular shift in content from previous ideas. James is, challenge, is a, a challenging book to read and understand for a number, a number of reasons. One of those reasons is that he changes topics and, and shuffles his ideas fairly quickly. And he, he cycles through these ideas. So at one moment, you're reading this thing, and, and then the very next moment, you're onto a new idea, and, and then another chapter later, he comes back to that first idea, something he's mentioned earlier. He's, James, as you know, is the older ADHD brother of Jesus that Jesus never had. Oh, look, a squirrel. Right? He's, he's that guy. He, he, uh, <laughs> those of you got, some of you got that. <laughs> We're not really far enough into the letter, though, to see that sort of uh, ADHD-ness of James, uh, where he jumps around. Yet at, at the same time, though, um, in our passage for tonight, he's, he's moving away from previous ideas to something new. And he's making some connections, though, with what he's stated earlier as well. And these three verses are, for James, a transition, really, uh, when the... The sermon series came out and uh, we priests reviewed the passages that we were to preach from. I was a little unhappy that Father Ethan gave these three verses to me. Uh, and, and of course, he's not here tonight. So uh, we'll see how this goes. What really, though, James is considering without explicitly stating it is the idea of sanctification. That is the ongoing process that one is in as Christian to grow and live a little bit more and more like a redeemed child of God. You'll remember that at conversion, an unbeliever has a change in status before God. This happens through the work of Jesus. They move from guilty to not guilty. And they move into relationship with God in Christ. And so once that occurs, this begins a lifelong process of sanctification, where a believer moves forward in faith, that Jesus will continually effect change upon them through the power of the Holy Spirit working in them to get rid of, as James says in 121, sin that lingers in the Christian and walk more and more in the nature and character of Christ. So these three little verses that we run into here in James chapter 1 verses 19 through 21 Crack the door open for us a little bit to to peek into the room where James will illuminate the image of one who understands the importance of faith, having an outward engagement in behavior. Let me say that again, because we have three verses and he, he does this quickly. These verses crack the door open for us to peek into the room where James will illuminate the image of one of one who understands the importance of faith having an outward engagement and behavior. That's where he's headed in his little letter. What does it look like for a Christian 
What does a Christian look like? How does a Christian behave? Those are the things that he's getting after. Before attending to these verses, though, I think it's important to mention their context. And I know it's not in your bulletin, so perhaps pull out your, your pew Bible in front of you and read along from James 1, verse 18. We did this last week, but here it is again. I'll, I'll read it to you. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Ethan masterfully preached the previous passage last week, and I I don't really want to confuse any of it. But James is making a transition here to a new set of ideas. And this verse really is crucial in helping us move into that new direction. James uses the imagery of new birth. The idea is very subtly carried into these verses, 19 through 21, for tonight. And I've already mentioned the idea of justification, that is, new birth. From condemned to redeemed. From death to life. From sinner to saint. Let me be clear. Colossians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 state... Of this faith you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. And indeed, in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Likewise, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 states, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Well, James would not have known about these particular passages, Colossians and Ephesians, at the time of his writing. There was clearly a sense of this idea. God births in you, through the gospel of Jesus, salvation and new life. You are all familiar with that Bible verse from Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, So that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation is first and foremost a gracious act of God in the gospel, whereby Jesus redeems humanity through his death and resurrection on the cross, thus giving his life to those who have faith. James actually writes his idea first when he says this in verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So James has spoken of new birth, and now he proposes to show that this experience would reveal itself in specific conduct. James does not waste any words, and he he is pointed and direct here. Let's look at verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Quick to listen. Quick to listen. Quick to listen to what? What words do we listen to? Verse 18 gives us the answer, but... How many of us listen to other things? It's nearly impossible to hear the many voices in our culture shouting at us. How many of us have heard, 
you're not good enough. At least one person. (laughs) How many of us have heard, you're not pretty. You're not athletic. You're not handsome. You're not creative enough. How many of us have heard, you're fat. You don't have what it takes. You should have straight A's if you're going to get a good job. Cleanliness is next to holiness. You're going woke and holding CRT values. How many, is, how many of us have heard those things? And how many of us have taken those things on board? And, and taken them as gospel truth? No, no. These are not correct words we're to listen to. What does James say? We're to listen to the gospel. Usually when we listen to these kinds of things, we get angry. We fight back in some way. Usually in a verbal way. And James knows this. So he tells us to be slow to speak and slow to become angry. I would bet that if I took a poll, we would all agree that we've all become angry about something that we've heard directed at us. And then we've responded to that word out of anger. The things we hear may not even be about us sometimes or directed at us, at us, although those usually are the most damaging. It could be simply that we hear something that we disagree with and we think, I need to correct that. I have to correct it. If I don't correct it, there will be heresy. People will believe the wrong thing. They will be led astray. I am the arbiter of truth. Whoa, whoa there, Nellie. That was for you horse people. That's, a, that's actually a direct translation from the Greek. Whoa, Nellie. Slow down. Slow down. In slowing down, James says, we enact humility. James offers us this warning. In the second part of the letter, which we'll get to in coming months, James emphasizes the sin of the tongue. He calls it malicious slander. Rabbis speak of that as the third tongue, for it slays three people. It slays the speaker. It slays the one who is spoken to and the one who is spoken of. The righteous person will listen well and consider carefully before he speaks and will restrain his anger lest it lead to hasty Nasty, irretrievable words. Verse 20, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. What is to be produced in believers as we submit ourselves to God in humility? James says righteousness or right actions. One one scholar suggests this is the modus vivendi or conduct required by Christian faith and obedience to God. It depicts the Christian life under the scrutiny and standards of God. A man's animosity toward his fellows does not create that kind of life. God's righteousness here refers not to the righteousness that is part of his character, but to the way of life indeed and thought that he requires in us. Such righteousness will become ours if we genuinely accept 
what is called in the next verse, the implanted word. Remember, actions display character. These two things are tied together. So in verse 21, James says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Consider the goal as stated here in verse 21. What's the goal? Salvation. The goal of the Christian life is not to correct people. It's to be saved so as to bring glory to God. An ongoing saving. Today, tomorrow, again next week, next month, next year, into eternity. What is it that saves us? James says, It's the word planted in you. You didn't plant it. God did. Scholars here have suggested that James is utilizing a parable from his brother that he probably read in the Gospel of Mark. Chapter four. It's the parable of the sower. Let me read it to you. Jesus says, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed as he was scattered the seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seeds fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parable. And Jesus said to them, do you understand this parable? How will you then understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like the seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word. That was sown in them. Others like seed sown on the rocky place. Hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others like seed sown among the thorns hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things come in and choke the word making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. By nature, seed must be implanted. And since the gospel has been preached, this has already been done. But the soil of the heart must be hospitable if the seed of the word is to grow. And so we must give up impure living and fully accept the word of truth, showing by acceptance and obedience, meekness or humility, which is among the fruits of the spirit. How do we learn to do this? How do we figure this out? I think it requires some deep work within ourselves. We don't typically have the skill in ourselves to root out our moral filth and produce righteousness. The letter of James is 
is loaded with imperatives, things that we ought to do. And to simply do them doesn't necessarily bring about the righteous life that God desires. We cannot make ourselves righteous by our own activities and behavior. Only God makes us righteous. This is where the spiritual disciplines are helpful. Specifically, in this case, silence, solitude, fasting. Let me tell you a couple of stories about learning to speak rightly and becoming slow to anger. In two separate instances in my life, after practicing these spiritual disciplines over a series of months and years, I learned this lesson to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become become angry. Dallas Willard calls these disciplines of abstinence. That is, we give up something tangible as we practice them. What they produce in us is something altogether godly and beyond ourselves. According to James, it's righteousness. Now, when we speak of the spiritual disciplines, it's really important that we're cautious. We have to be careful with these things because they don't create anything in us, but that the Lord does that work. It's God's grace-filled work to transform the lives of his children. So I learned the value of listening when attending a series of silent retreats. In each retreat, I joined a, a monastery whose rule of life was silence. The only time our audible voices were used was in prayer, in praise, and in scripture reading. And over the course of a number of long weekends, I learned to wait on the Lord in quietness, meekness, and humility. My voice was only needed in worship to praise God and speak what is true about him. No words were used during meals or passing one another in the hallways. It was quite awkward, I might say, the first couple of visits. But I learned in those moments, in those weekends in silence, to be attentive to the word of God, the logos in Greek. That is, the creative speech of God in Jesus. The apostle John describes Jesus in this way from the gospel we read today. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I learned as I sat quietly with the living word to listen to the word and not offer my own opinions on matters. Once those retreats ended, I was often struck by the first things that I would voice when I returned home to my family. I had discovered in the weekends of silence that words matter. They have a weight. They can bless or curse. They can encourage Or wound. What is a word after all? It's a creative thing that's formulated out of the darkness of our minds. And only after our mouths move in certain ways and our diaphragm compresses air out of our lungs that flows over our vocal cords to form the ideas that are hidden away in my mind. You are then able to hear what I have to say. And somehow it's not even... Wow, I didn't even understand it all. That my vocal cords create uh, waves 
And those sound waves are then picked up by a little tiny drum in your ear that then are reformulated into specific words and ideas that you understand, hopefully. We create these things from within ourselves, from our nature or character, as Dallas Willard would say. And our words then demonstrate the character of the man. So what character do you display in your words? The character of God was displayed in the word of God, the Logos, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and blood to become like one of us, to redeem us from our sinful nature, and who was raised from the dead as the first fruits of righteousness. The second story I want to tell you about, some of you have already heard me speak of in my spiritual formation course. Several years ago, I spent a lot of time engaging in the spiritual discipline of fasting. Again, a discipline of abstinence. And after many uh, years practicing this discipline, I wondered what had changed in me as a result of the engagement in it. One year after spring break, my brother and I were visiting my parents. By the way, who are here visiting today. Dad, I didn't approve this story beforehand, so I apologize. We were visiting my parents at their home in Florida. And on the first day, my younger brother, Doug, and I were standing in the kitchen looking out over the inland coastal waterway. And my brother, Doug, asked while we were drinking coffee, what do you want to do together this week? Well, Dad's boat dock had been broken in one corner. And without thinking about it, I responded to my brother, let's fix the dock for Dad. Incredulously, he responded, you know what that'll mean, don't you? Now, I need to give you a little family history and backstory. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. <laughs> My dad was a pilot with United Airlines during his career, and he loved flying airplanes. And throughout his career, it afforded us amazing opportunities to travel the world. Once he made captain, we began to give him that moniker, the captain, because we realized the captain could never be wrong. In fact, I have echoing in my mind that phrase that he would repeat over and over. A captain can never be wrong. It was maybe a mantra that he played in his head. I I can ask him later. I don't know. Um, Indeed, nobody, though, who gets in an airplane wants the captain to make a mistake, right? No, we want the captains to be perfect, to fly as perfectly from point A to point B and land the plane beautifully so that we can get out of it when we're done. So when my brother responded to my suggestion to fix the dock, he was implying that we were incapable of doing the job to dad's standards and perfectionistic tendencies. He was right, by the way. (laughs) But what came out of my mouth surprised even me. And I said, yeah, I know what that will likely mean, a heated discussion, over the details of how to correctly fix the dock. But I said something different. I said, but why don't we just fix it however dad wants it done? My brother shook his head in dismay, turned his back, and walked into the other room. We didn't fix the dock, and dad had to hire someone to do it for him. (laughs) But what I learned through practicing this discipline The disciplines of silence, not speaking, and the discipline of fasting, giving up food for a time, was that my character had been formed through the grace of God. 
And during my time fasting, I'd been meditating on Scripture, the Word, the Logos. During my time in silence, I'd only spoken words to praise and thanksgiving and worship of the living Logos. And as a result of these disciplines, I became more willing to give up my rights and my opinions. I'd begun to learn this lesson. A cursory reading of these verses may lead us to focus on what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. In other words, our behavior. It's important to get past looking simply at our behavior and attend to the condition of our heart. And to do this properly, we must cultivate the word planted in us. It's from verse 21. For those of us who believe, that word is already there. The word of God lives within us, but the process of humbly accepting it, as James states, is just that. It's a process. And as we journey with Jesus in the process of becoming more like him, we may find ourselves becoming quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Amen.